Welcome to Core Values, Explorations in Religion and the Humanities. This podcast is produced by the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities at the California State University in Chico. I am your host, Daniel Weidlinger, and I hope you will join us on an exciting adventure where we will grapple with questions both timely and timeless. Questions such as, where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the meaning of life? What should be our relationship with others, with ourselves, with nature, and even with the cosmos? How should we approach death, suffering, and uncertainty? How should faith and reason inform each other? What do we value in life? And what should we value? You know, when I was growing up, there was a TV show called The Greatest American Hero where a humble school teacher is given a suit by aliens that gives him superhero powers, but he promptly loses the instruction book and has to figure out how the suit operates, leading to much hilarity as he crash lands in people's backyard pools and whatnot. Well, we do not have an instruction book that tells us how to live our lives and different societies have provided widely divergent answers to these questions. For some people, their greatest fear is the finality of death, the idea that once we die, conscious experience will come to a bitter end. This parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to see its maker. This is a late parrot. These people hope against hope that there is something more beyond the gates of death, perhaps a heaven, or perhaps they long for reincarnation in a beautiful cycle of life and rebirth. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day, again. Conversely, other people might dread the thought of endless cycles of reincarnation and strive instead for the complete cessation of individual consciousness, and an eternal state of emptiness, where there is nothing but the bliss of silence. That last soundbite was supposed to be an excerpt from the classical music piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds of Silence, by noted American composer John Cage, Now, John Cage was deeply influenced by the simplicity of the Zen Buddhist aesthetic in his works. However, we weren't able to secure the rights to use the Cage piece in this podcast. So what you did hear was a selection from The Lion Tamer by beloved French mime Marcel Marceau. Some religions accept a pantheon of many gods. Others accept only one. And other religious systems don't really seem to have any God. The possibilities are many, and we hope to touch on these and more in this series of podcasts.
Most of these podcasts will involve interviews with other scholars in our program on issues that are of relevance to the world today. But in this first episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the basic features of the study of religion. So secularization theory was a prominent idea amongst sociologists and indeed amongst the general public in the 1960s and onwards. It holds that religion is playing less and less of a role in public life as modern science and other forms of knowledge advance. It was thought by many that as modernity progresses, religion would be sidelined into a diminishing role in people's lives. Surely, as the bright light of reason shone through the medieval clouds of dogma, people would base their ideas about morality, about the nature of disease, about how to raise their children, about when to go to war, less and less on religion. The eminent political philosopher Charles Taylor called this the subtraction thesis. The idea that science leads to religion being subtracted from more and more areas of life until finally, once science has all the answers, religion would eventually vanish from any meaningful role in society. You know, I had the privilege of taking a course on political theory with Professor Taylor when I was in college, and he explained the thinking of such foundational figures as Thomas Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, and Hegel with such eloquence and precision that I only wish I had had the background knowledge at that age to appreciate what I was learning. But the interesting thing is, he was constantly running for a seat in Parliament and was never able to win. So here we have the greatest living political philosopher, who will literally still be studied with reverence in 100, 200, probably 300 years for his insight into the political life of modern society. But yet, he was not able to actually win some measly seat in the Canadian elections. I've always wondered if that's an indictment of him or of us. At any rate, I'm sure it's clear to you if you have, let's say, ever read the news in the last 20 years, that secularization theory was quite wrong. And in a very rare about face, one of its prime advocates, Peter Berger, has even admitted that he was wrong. Rates of religious affiliation in the United States have remained above 70%, and belief in God is as strong as it ever was at well above 80%. Across the Middle East, religious leaders hold great power over society. In Sri Lanka, Burma, Ireland, Israel, Xinjiang, India, Somalia, the list could go on and on. Religious-based conflicts have festered over the recent past. We also have a situation in which, for example, people do not fear climate change because they are sure that God will take care of the world. People in America have refused to wear masks during the COVID pandemic because, as one woman told the city council in her town, They want to throw God's wonderful breathing system out the door. You're all turning your backs on it. Of course, having just said that religion still plays an extremely important role in society, it is important to understand that the shape of religion has been changing a lot in recent years. One of the reasons for this is that the traditional sources of religious authority, for example, the church, Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! in some ways have been losing their influence on society. But other institutions have been replacing them. 
One of the theories that helps to explain this change in the shape of religion is mediatization theory. It was forwarded by Stig Hjarvard. And this theory states that religious expression is moving out of the more traditional realms, such as the church or the synagogue or whatever it may be, into the media. So the media, on this understanding, has become the primary site for the circulation of religious symbols in contemporary societies. To illustrate this, we would want to think about TV shows that have supernatural features. They're extremely popular these days. There's an amazing amount of shows that feature devils, angels, God, heaven, hell. These kinds of things are being expressed through popular media, such as television. Lucifer Morningstar, is that a stage name? God-given, I'm afraid. Why don't you tell me something? How does she end up dying in a hailstorm of bullets and you get away without a scratch? The benefits of immortality. Think about how many YouTube videos there are that purport to reveal some new way of understanding spirituality or some passage cross, in the Bible or some discourse of the Buddha. These things the get millions of views. Think about how much debate there is, sometimes civil and sometimes not, on Twitter about religion. All of these modern media are sites of religious expression. They are not just secondary to the church, but nowadays are actually taking on a role that is almost as important as more traditional sources of authority have been in the past. So again, what this means is that the shape of religion is changing. The way it looks when you examine it is quite different from the way it might have looked 500 years ago. But the raw fact that people are engaging with religious ideas in their life is remarkably consistent. Give me that old-time religion, good religion that it used to be. While religious belief, and to some extent practice, is still quite high in modern times, religious knowledge is not. And this is where we as a Department of Religious Studies comes in. The Interfaith Diversity Experiences and Attitudes Longitudinal Survey found that nearly three-quarters of senior college students did terribly on a short, standardized quiz testing their knowledge of eight different religious worldviews. Knowledge of the details about the world's religions, and even of one's own, what we call religious literacy, is shockingly low. How many people identifying as Jews or Christians could name all the Ten Commandments offhand? Well, not a lot. In fact, a recent survey showed that Americans can more easily name the nine cast members of the Brady Bunch than they can the Ten Commandments. Even thou shalt not kill is a stumper for many. Of course, one might wish to stay away from the wicked Bible when looking for the right answers to this question. What's the wicked Bible, you might ask? Well, it was a Bible that was published in 1631 in England, and there were a few little spelling mistakes in it. Unfortunately, one of them was in the Eighth Commandments, where it says, Thou shalt commit adultery. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Before we go any further, we should probably discuss a little bit about the basic meaning of the terms that are going to be the theme for this podcast, namely religion and the humanities. So, as a professor in a department of comparative religion, I'm often asked, well, what is religion? And my answer to that is, 
I don't know and I don't care. Many people are often surprised when that's my response. But when we talk about what religion is, this gets into a whole can of worms. You see, religion is not necessarily an actual thing out there, like a tree. A, tr a tree is a physical thing, and we can point to this and say it's a tree, and we can point to that and say it's not. But religion is rather a whole collection of beliefs and practices and experiences, some of which, when they take certain forms, many people call a religion. But there's lots of other beliefs and practices and experiences that people have that people don't call a religion. So we start to get into a whole definitional problem that I think often ends up causing people to spend more time on it than is necessary. There's not a right or a wrong answer to this kind of thing. And some cultures don't have any conception of religion whatsoever. I'm not saying that they don't do things that Western scholars would call religion, but I'm saying that in their native tradition, they don't have a separate entity called religion. They just think of what we would call religion as just living their life. However, certainly a minimal definition of religion would have to do with how one orients oneself towards matters of ultimate concern. I think everybody would certainly agree on at least that element of religion. Some people would say that the Grateful Dead, for example, is a kind of religion. Deadheads who follow the band around, who dress a certain way, who eat certain foods, who have certain ideas about the world and about politics, all of this uh, is a constellation that could be called a religion. In fact, when I was in college, one of my colleagues was writing a master's thesis on the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a religion. You might know that there's a whole community of people that's dressed in certain ways and that perform certain rituals during the playing of this movie. And it becomes a pretty big part of their life. There are myths associated with it. There are beliefs associated with it. And it can certainly be studied as if it were religion. As a professor who focuses on Buddhism, of course, I'm often asked, is Buddhism a religion or not? And again, you won't be surprised to hear that I say, I don't know and I don't care because it depends on what you consider a religion. I'd like to actually back up a little bit and correct something I said a minute ago. I said that a religion is not like a tree, that's something out there that either is or isn't a tree. But in fact, even with that, there are differences of opinion. So for example, when I was in Israel, I was working on a kibbutz and we were picking dates from the palm trees. And I had great difficulty getting dates, I've got to tell you. But anyway, I was told that a palm tree is not actually a tree. I was quite surprised to find this out because it sure looked like a tree to me. But apparently, botanists do not consider a palm tree to be a tree. So here we have a perfect example of the kind of problem I'm talking about. Is it a tree or is it not a tree? Well, it kind of depends on what you choose to define as the key features of a tree. I remember there was once a court case about censorship that focused on what counts as pornography. And the judge said that although he couldn't define it in precise terms, he certainly knew pornography when he saw it. And that's not a terrible approach to take for religion, if you ask me. Mercia Eliadi 
the renowned scholar of religion from the University of Chicago, used to call religion a response to the holy. He stated that for religious people, the idea of the sacred helped to orient the human being to the world around them. You know, when I was a student myself at the University of Chicago, I used to see Ali Ali in the cafeteria, and he would always order a turkey sandwich. It was like clockwork. Every time I was down there around 12.30 lunchtime, I would see him walk in, and he would order his turkey sandwich and sit down and eat it. I later found out that Eliadi had died uh, some years earlier, so I guess that wasn't Eliadi that I was seeing there. But whoever it was really enjoyed turkey sandwiches. I know a lot of people say that religion arose as a form of social control, but I think that places too much emphasis on the judgmental aspects of many religions. And indeed, there are lots of ways to control people through a system of purely secular punishments and social opprobrium. You don't need religion for that. People are also heard saying that religion is there to make life easier by answering our deepest questions and giving us a framework for life. But is following a religion really easier? When rebellious teenagers refuse to follow the multitude of religious rules and regulations in their society, are they really doing that because they just feel that being religious is too easy? I somehow doubt it. Ninian Smart, who was a well-known professor of religious studies, said that if you look at the world's religions, one sees that they tend to have seven features that are common amongst the various religions. One is rituals. Religions tend to have rituals, ceremonies that follow specific orders and have certain forms that are passed on from generation to generation. They have myths, which are stories that interpret the universe and humanity's place in it. There's an experiential dimension to religions, where uh, the practice of the religion elicits feelings of awe, mystery, devotion, and the like inside the practitioner. They have social institutions, which involve rules for identifying community membership and participation. There are ethical and legal norms that tell humans how to behave. Of course, there's doctrines and belief systems. And there's also material objects associated with the religions, uh, such are artifacts as uh, goblets on the small scale, uh, ranging all the way up to very large things such as temples. Now, all religions don't have to exhibit all seven dimensions, but most religions have most of these features. Now that you're suitably confused about what religion is, I should say that we don't just study religion in our department, but we study comparative religion. It's important to understand that there are various different ways of approaching the study of religion. In some departments, especially in uh, private uh, schools that are connected to a church or religious group of some sort, they might study religion from the point of view of faith, where they believe in one particular religion, and they're trying to study the theology and the history and uh, rituals of that religion more deeply. But in universities, such as uh, California State University, we study religion as academics from an objective, or at least as objective a point of view as we can. And we don't take sides on the truth of any particular religious claims, but we study them as objects of study in a way uh, that you might study 
uh, history or um, anthropology or any other human science. A historian who studies Germany, for example, uh, no more expects the students to actually go and live in Germany than a professor who, a comparative religionist who focuses on Buddhism, expects their students to go and become Buddhists. It's important to understand that, and even other uh, academics often get confused as to why religion is being taught at the university, uh, to which we reply that we are not teaching the students to be religious, we are simply teaching them about the various religions. So when we call it comparative religion, that is a way of emphasizing that we are not taking a particular stand on any one religion. And indeed, we look at the various religions of the world and compare and contrast them. We like to look for uh, points of similarity. What ideas do they have in common? What um, artistic forms do they have in common? What rituals do they have in common? And which ones are different? And then, of course, we try to explore why they might be similar and why they might be different. Some of the reasons that some religions have similar ideas are historical. So, for example, in uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you might find similar conceptions of God, uh, one monotheistic God with uh, no physical form. And the reason that those similarities occur are historical, that those religions are all genealogically related. But you might find other features of religion that are common between people in Brazil or groups in Africa or Europe or Asia, and they might have similarities, but there's been no contact between the groups. So why might that be? Well, then you might start looking towards human psychology. The nature of the human mind causes the products of the human mind, such as religion, to take similar shapes because we have similar needs, similar wants, similar fears, and similar desires. We're all afraid of death. We all wonder how the world started. So religions, even without any historical connection, might very well have these same features. Comparison is extremely important when coming to understand anything in life, not just religion. Max Mueller, who was one of the founders of the field of comparative religion, used to say, he who knows one knows none meaning that if you only really know about one religion, then you don't truly understand it at all. Because to know something, you've got to mark it against something else. And that doesn't just go for religion, but for all things. For example, if you say it's a very warm day outside, really that statement doesn't have much meaning unless you compare it to other days, some of which are colder and some of which are hotter. So compared to a cold winter's day, a mild fall afternoon might be warm. But compared to a hot summer's day, a mild fall afternoon might be chilly. You can even try this at home by taking a lukewarm bowl of water and stick your hand for a minute or two into a bowl of icy water, then put it into the lukewarm water and it will actually feel hot to you. But if you put your hand into some very, very hot water and then put it in the lukewarm water after a few minutes, it will feel cold to you. So you can see this comparative aspect occurring in your daily life in such an example. Now we have to turn to the humanities. Well, the humanities is the study of the creative products of the human mind. 
That makes it include things such as art, philosophy, literature, music, and culture more generally. Again, like religion, what counts as the humanities is also under debate. For some, history is a humanities, and uh, for others, it is a kind of social science. Often people feel that the key element to consider is how much quantifiable data is used in the discipline. If the field focuses more on quantitative data, people tend to see it as a social science. And if it uses more qualitative data and is more descriptive in nature, it tends to be thought of as humanities. In fact, a new field called digital humanities tries to breach this gap by applying computerized analysis of big data to help shed light on traditional humanities questions. For example, scholars of Buddhism have argued for decades over the importance of meditation in Buddhism compared to devotional practices, and a computer program that could extract every single reference to both of these modes of religious practice in the enormous Buddhist canon could help to answer a question like that by calculating the relative frequencies of these topics. Humanities, like religious studies, is under great pressure nowadays. There is a lot of emphasis on people studying STEM in universities, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, with the idea that somehow these contribute more to society than any other field. Well, we hope that you will change your mind about this, if indeed you already agree with that idea, after listening to these podcasts and thinking more about the importance of religion and the humanities to our daily life. In fact, I like to argue that as time goes on, the STEM disciplines, which are highly quantitative, and in fact are, because of that, amenable to being done better by computers than by human beings, might in fact be done more and more by computers and less and less by human beings in the future as computers become better and better at what they do. One thing that it's unlikely computers will be able to replace is the humanities. It's unlikely that computers will be able to produce and study art, philosophy, literature, music, as well as human beings. Now, let's be clear, computers are already doing those things, but not nearly as well as they perform mathematical algorithms or as they are able to analyze physics questions and things of that nature. So the joke is, well, I don't know if it's so funny, but that while people are focusing on the importance of science and technology because they see science and technology burgeoning all around us, the very fact that science and technology are being so successful might very well mark an end to their usefulness as a field of study for human beings in a university because they will be done by computers. Whereas, again, the humanities are much less likely to be done well by computers in the future. So listen on, everybody, and I hope you will find that we convince you that humanities and religious studies are more and more important to our lives every day as we move into the future. If you'd like to learn more about the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities, please go to our website at csuchico.edu slash c-o-r-h. That's c-s-u-c-h-i-c-o dot e-d-u slash c-o-r-h. There you can learn more about our faculty and our programs, 
One of our newer programs is an online degree completion program. It's one of the few like it in the country where you can take 34 units, that is to say 11 courses in religious studies that will help you complete your undergraduate degree if you already have at least 60 credits of undergraduate courses under your belt. We plan to have a few episodes each semester of this podcast, and each semester the podcast is going to have a theme. Because of the truly biblical pestilence that we are living under, that is COVID-19, this semester's theme is going to be religion and health. There's a lot of fascinating things to discuss in this topic, such as the ethics of organ donation, the role of chaplains in hospitals, the appropriateness of euthanasia, and so much more. And I'm sure you'll find the following interviews very interesting, so please stay tuned for that. I want to point out that the opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect those of the faculty and staff of our department. All of the incidental music was written by me for my high school band, Tempus Fugit. It's not your my band, school band, buddy. It's my band. My no, band. No, 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 guys. It's it's my band, and you know it. The song well, you was written after we yeah. Hold on a second. The song was written after we kicked you out. No, you guys were members of my band. I mean, I was the most important Slayer, as you know. Nope. And Dario and I wrote it. You weren't you weren't even in the band at the time. Yeah, even no. I wrote a part of it, and I just play the drums. I really don't think that's correct. Uh, my memory is definitely I think you might have that I was, you know, pretty much the superstar in the band. I mean, you guys were good, <laughs> but uh, it was like a backing band for me. 